the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Change makers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. At age 11, today's guest, Dr. Brooke Ellison, was hit by a car, an accident that left her paralyzed from the neck down and dependent on a ventilator. Ten years later, she graduated from Harvard University with a degree in cognitive neuroscience. At 23, she penned Miracles Happen, a memoir that was adapted into a movie, The Brooke Ellison Story, which was directed by Christopher Reeve. Brooke joins us today to talk about the story of her remarkable life and the belief that people possess the strength and grit to fight back when we feel all is lost. Brooke is also the author of Look Both Ways. Welcome, Brooke. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Joan. It's a pleasure to talk to you today. So, Brooke, let's begin by talking a little bit about the accident that occurred to you when you were a child. What happened and what types of injuries did you sustain? Sure. So I grew up uh, on Long Island, where I talked to you uh, today. Um, and uh, so as a child, my life was like many other children's uh, growing up in suburbia. I was involved in many ex- extracurricular activities that defined my day, um, dancing and soccer and karate, the whole gamut. Um, when I was 11 years old, though, I was walking home for my after my first day of seventh grade. And to do that, I had to cross a fairly major highway here on Long Island, and I was hit by a car. And the accident generated just tremendous injuries to my body, all sorts of uh, really devastating uh, injuries, including I cracked my skull open, I bit off a third of my tongue, I was in cardiac and respiratory arrest. Um, I was brought to Stony Brook Hospital where they uh, administered um, uh, immediate uh, resuscitative measures, and it was highly questionable whether or not I would survive. Um, fortunately, I did, uh, but the lingering uh, injuries that I had and have until this day um, was uh, damage to my spinal cord, a spinal cord injury, very high up on my spinal cord, so C2 and C3, so high up on the cervical spine, kind of in my neck, uh, which left me paralyzed from my neck down and dependent on a ventilator to breathe. So I spent six weeks in pediatric intensive care at Stony Brook Hospital, just getting stabilized. Um, when I awoke from the coma that I was in, I didn't know where I was. Um, I didn't quite. I wasn't quite sure what had happened to me, uh, but I knew that things were just catastrophically different. Um, I wasn't really able to talk, but I communicated to my parents in whatever way that I could that I wanted to return to school. That was really something that was of utmost importance to me at the time. I spent an additional seven and a half months in rehabilitation, just kind of learning to live with a disability, learning to accommodate a life that I had known to disability. And that was, of course, um, you know, just laden with struggle and uncertainty. But I returned home that following May, so my accident happened in September of 1990, so I missed that entire academic year and uh, returned home that following May after a lot of therapy and physical therapy, occupational therapy, that sort of thing, to learn to uh, accommodate my life to disability and um, 
fortunately, I was able to return to school exactly one year from the day of my accident. And that kind of set me on the path for um, my future. It was a hard-fought battle to return to school, but one that uh, my family and I fought very hard to um, to make sure was a possibility for me. And you know, thankfully that was, and it's been the trajectory that my life has taken ever since, a focus on my education and ways that I could continue to make a difference and contribute to the world in whatever meaningful ways I could. And Brooke, do you remember back when you first woke up after the accident and you realized the extent of your injuries? Do you remember what was going through your mind? What were you thinking and feeling then? Mm-hmm. Well, it was it was terrifying for sure. So, so first and foremost, I was in just you know, immense amounts of pain. Um, you know, after you're cracking your skull open and, and biting off a third of your tongue, that was really what I could feel most acutely and you know, obviously. Um, but you know, my body had just suffered traumatic injuries and uh, on top of that um, I remember being in the hospital bed and not able to you know, to move my body not able to, to move my neck or my head anything just kind of staring at the ceiling in front of me and um, you not being able to, to vocalize anything I had so many questions so many fears so many uncertainties and I wasn't able to express any of that um, my parents were kind of staring at my face constantly to, to so the, in the event that I was trying to get their attention or trying to mouth words to them they didn't want to miss anything that I might you know, I might see I didn't know what my life was going to look like um, initially after my accident I thought for sure that you know um, I would be in the hospital for a certain amount of time you know a couple of weeks and then by by Christmas time I would be home back with my family and things would be just fine you know, and I would I would exit the hospital the exact way that I came in and that you know I'd just be you know, decorating the Christmas tree and then getting ready for the holidays with my with my family as you know, as we always had um it wasn't until I was moved from pediatric uh, intensive care until to rehabilitation that um, it became a lot more obvious that wait a second things are not going to go according to the timeline that I had expected and that uh, I was going to live a life of, you know for however long I will live you know with disability for um, for a lot longer than I ever would have anticipated and that I was going to need to entirely rethink how I approached my sense of purpose and who I was in the world. And like, that was really difficult when you're only 11 or 12 years old. Like that is, um, identity shifting and just like life altering. And that was a lot to try to grapple with at such a young age. Um, yeah, I missed my, my friends and my sister and my brother so desperately at those times. I know that my sister and brother came to visit me in the hospital and like, it was very difficult for them, really emotionally difficult to see their sister, um, in such a, uh, you know, a, uh, a different state. And I know that was the case for also for friends who came to visit me. You know, there were just only several who were allowed to come up to see me, but it was quite devastating for everybody, for sure. Mm-hmm. Brooke, we all have these ideas of the way we believe our life will turn out. And we have these expectations that we set for ourselves. And when things don't happen the way we believe they should, we have a difficult time navigating those challenges or those changes. What do you think was your driving force? I mean, your life was dramatically different than the one you had envisioned for yourself. So as you aged in the years past, what do you think was the driving force that kept you going and getting stronger? Thank you. Yeah, when I was a child, you know, I, I was I started dancing when I was just two years old. Um, so I kind of envisioned my life taking that path. I envisioned myself being on Broadway and being a Broadway dancer or, or something. Or I had um, thought that I would go to Oxford, where I would become a lawyer. Like that was kind of the vision that I had for my life. Um, and yeah, I think you're exactly right. We we have these goals that we set for ourselves, and then life throws us these um, these curveballs where things go vastly different, and it's hard to not envision the path that we had set for ourselves as being the right path. Right, this was the path that we were supposed to be on, and some and what would be the course that our lives ultimately take um, are some kind of subpar version of what should have been or ought to have been or could have been, right? I struggled with that 
for my for you know, for myself you know, for many years and even to this day like there's not a single day that goes by where I don't think oh well, you know, what if you know what if my life you know, what if I didn't cross that road that day or didn't decide to walk home from school that day you know where would where would I be right now what would I be doing but it didn't take long for me to realize that all of those things are purely hypothetical, right? No less real than any other way we could envision our lives. And what we have right now is all that matters. And, you know, it's kind of like um, I, I felt a sense of responsibility you know, to my family and to my friends, all these people who were um, giving me so much support and so much love and, and were making changes in their own lives to uh, make sure that my life was as successful as it could be. You know, I had some sense of responsibility to them to you know, hold up my end of the deal here, right, to, to try to find the ways that um, I could continue to contribute to the world. Um, when I was in college, I studied hope and what that means and how that is so delicately tied to the construct of resilience. And when I say hope, you know, like I don't just mean an amorphous um, abstraction that we, you know, wish for or something like that, but, you know, a, um, a skill set that's built on the knowledge that, our, that you know, we can have a, uh, goals in our lives and uh, recognize the difficulty that we might experience in order to attain those goals, but can still attain them nonetheless, um, mm-hmm. that we can circumscribe the challenges that we face and not feel like they are all consuming and they're affecting all parts of our lives. And like that, those were lessons that I learned very early on and uh, have relied, relied on really every day of my life ever since. And I think it's a skill set that we all can benefit from. And it's a decision. It's a choice that we make. It, it, you know, people sometimes think that this just happens. It's a lot of work to decide to focus on the hope and the blessings and the gratitude. And that is, I believe, a conscious decision we make to move our lives forward. Oh, my goodness, I couldn't agree more strongly. And that's not to say that, you know, there aren't days where I falter, right? Because we all do. We're all human beings. And there are days where I get frustrated and feel like, oh, how come I'm not, I can't do all these other things that my friends are doing. How come I'm not hopping on a plane and going, you know, to this part of the world or the other or, um, you know, jumping in my car and, and doing all the things that, you know, that other people do. Of course, like those, those feelings of frustration, um, I, I, I get encumbered by those periodically, just like everybody else. But I know that my life as I live it right now is extremely valuable, right? The things that I'm able to do and the lives that I've been able to touch purely because of my disability, because of my accident like that, that is really important for me to remember. That's something that I think um, is critical to making sure that I, I plot a, pa- a path forward for myself, like knowing that um, there are still ways that I can contribute to the world and that you know, I want to seize every opportunity that comes my way to do that. Mm-hmm. You wrote a book, Miracles Happen, and what you're describing just now sounds like a miracle to me. So what types of miracles have you seen in your life? Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, well, you know, if somebody had had told me before my accident, you know, when I was just a child, that um, that you would undergo this devastating accident, but then you know, find a path forward despite you living with quadriplegia and then being on a, on a ventilator. Like, I don't know if I would have been able to understand that or like I would have if I don't know if I could have anticipated that for my life at all. Um, so I think that knowledge learning that knowledge is a miracle unto itself. Um, like having the, um, the understanding that, wait a second, life posts something as catastrophic as um, being hit by a car and being left paralyzed from the neck down. Uh, you could still find meaning in that life. Like that is a miracle in and of itself to me. But I think much farther beyond that, um, like any time I'm asked you know, what I'm proudest of in my life, you know, there's many things that I could conceivably talk about, but what, I'm, what I think I'm most proud of is um, you know, the, the fact that my family was able to take 
a really difficult set of circumstances and say, wait a second, there is a, there is a meaningful life that can be found here. Yeah, we all we all are going to need to modify and adapt and change how we view the way we live our lives, but there's still something very valuable and very precious to be working towards. And like that, I think, is um, what I am by far um, most proud of. So I think you know, that is an additional miracle. And then, you know, so just this past weekend, I had um, my friends over. So my friends who I hadn't seen, many of whom I hadn't seen since before the pandemic, right? So a very long time. And when I was together with all of them, I, I was very deliberate and intentional about telling telling them how much they are superheroes in my lives, true miracles in my life, and like the very uh, vehicles by which I've been able to get from one day to the next for all of these years, so they are um, you know, above and beyond almost anything else, you know, true miracles in my life. So I think we need to be really cognizant of the role that we play in each other's lives and how central we are to getting people from one day to the next. I couldn't agree more. Do you think that the best advice you can offer to family members and friends that might be facing a similar situation to what your family did is that you have to find the meaning, that there is meaning, there's value in that life, and that's the starting point to move for, up from? Oh, no question about it. Yeah, no question about it. And I think that is that is um, struggle number one, right? That is um, task number one when you're facing adversities, right, is to not let that feeling of adversity or the feeling of challenge subsume every part of your life, right? Like we hear about this all the time, and I certainly have experienced it myself. When you're facing challenge, you feel like it's it's just, it, it's, it has infiltrated all parts of who you are, right? It's just taken over your entire life. It's, it's hard to find a way forward in any capacity, right? It's just, it just happens so frequently, whether it's it's through uh, an injury, an illness, you know, the, 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 the loss of a loved one, it just, it just takes over. But for to have the ability to just circumscribe that challenge, right? To compartmentalize it in whatever way you can and then look for the other ways that you can find meaning and purpose in your life like that. Those are like tremendous, tremendous skills in getting over the adversity or challenge that we face. Like absolutely goals, you know, one and two when it comes to, to fighting it, the challenges that we experience to say, wait a second, there is still meaning to be found in my life and I can actually uh, contribute to the world and the world can affect me in positive ways if I have that understanding. Absolutely. And it goes back to releasing those expectations because our despair comes from the fact that we believe different equals no meaning, no value. And when you can get rid of, right? Yeah, yeah. Different is always uh, understood as less than, right? Or some kind of inferior version of what could have been when that's not always the case. And so, Brooke, if you could speak directly to physicians, healthcare professionals, caregivers, family members, what do you want them to understand about recovery, about what you've experienced and what it's like for you to get through a day? So I think the disability um, for a very long time on the, on the, from the popular level and certainly from the medical um, perspective as well is, is looked at from um, uh, the medical model of disability, right? Understanding disability to be a, um, a medical issue, right, entirely, right? Some kind of medical diagnosis or medical failure or some kind of part of a person's personhood that couldn't be fixed through a medical intervention, I think that that's that's not all that helpful, right? There are many different um, social structures that um, we build, um, policies that we enact, um, uh, social supports that we put into place, technologies that we innovate that can can either... um, enable somebody or further disable somebody, right? And like, that is how we need to understand disability, right? It's not just a physical part of our lives, but it's, it's it, it touches on all parts of the social experience as well. And when we understand it that way, then yeah, society has a really important role in how people get through the day. And I think that physicians are, are often on the front lines or kind of the first points of contact when it comes down to when, it, when somebody has experienced, uh, you know, life change 
life-changing disease diagnosis or disability, and they can help foster that belief that, wait a second, we're not just talking about, you know, where your your body is failing you or or the deficits that your body is experiencing, but you, you can go on to do very valuable and important things if you understand you know, your position in the world to be a little bit different than it may have been before, but no less significant. Um, I think that we don't do that frequently enough. I think that um, uh, oftentimes members of the healthcare field understand disability and, and uh, disease or diagnoses to be um, only in terms of deficit and only in terms of loss when that's not always the case. And there are many opportunities to continue to, to make a difference in the world and to move forward. I think if, if physicians and healthcare professionals helped you instantiate those beliefs, then everybody would be better off. Have you ever faced a situation that was disrespectful or unfair to you? And and if you have, how did you navigate it? Sure, yeah. So these are a couple of things that I talk about um, and were very difficult for me to talk about, actually, in the the pages of Look Both Ways. Uh, I think it's often the case that people with disabilities are treated um, as, like, children, right, infantilized in some way, not given... um, credit for their accomplishments or not seen as valuable contributors to the workplace. And I experienced that several times. Uh, Even to this day, I continue to experience those kinds of things. So there were instances in which I was looking for, um, I talk very frankly about this in the book, I was helping my brother find an apartment. He had just graduated from college and was going to be staring, staying up in the Massachusetts area, in the Boston area. And we were looking for apartments for him. Uh, and uh, we were coming out of one of the apartment buildings that he was considering uh, you know, renting in. And there was a woman who came out of the apartment building and said, um, "You know, uh, this we don't have, we don't, we don't uh, welcome people like you in this building." Which I like at first I didn't even understand like what was going on. Like it was, it was such an aberration, such a, such a. A um, a different and belittling experience. I was shocked. Um, it, it, I think uh, looking looking at that situation in hindsight, I have become a stronger person as a result of it. But I remember when I when I first encountered that, I had that experience. Like I I, I was um, speechless and distraught thinking to myself, how could somebody um, think that they had any understanding of my life without ever, ever having spoken to me or, or known me, or how could somebody treat me with such disregard? Um, and I know that many people with disabilities experience circumstances similar to that on a repeated basis. And there have been situations in the workplace where I've been, um, you know, my work hasn't been valued as much as other people's work or, you know, um, Opportunities are not afforded to me in the same way that they're afforded to other people, right? So these are, I think, um, common challenges that people with disabilities face because of how we have understood disability and the way we undervalue the lives of people with disabilities. Um, And like that is work that I am consistently trying to build into who I am and how I live my life to help change that narrative from disability or the experiencing of disability as some kind of weakness or vulnerability to one of strengths and mm-hmm. the kinds of virtues that disability, I think, um, engenders in, in how somebody approaches life. And Brooke, what about someone who goes through a challenge where they thought that they would fall in love and have a family? How were you able to navigate those issues in your life? Sure, yeah. So this is something that I, that I, I spent an entire chapter of the book talking about. And yeah, before writing this book, I actually didn't ever think that I would talk about or could talk about right? It's such an emotional issue uh, for everybody, um, especially somebody uh, you know, who lives with a disability and are, are often, far too often, um, you're not considered uh, those in whom people might find beauty or or love, and like that's something that I have struggled with you know, for a very long time. 
And uh, for many years of my life, I regretted that deeply. Like, I was extremely self-conscious about it or um, frustrated about it and felt like, you know, how, why me or why not me? How come, you know, I can't find somebody for you to, to, to fall in love with or who, who would love me in that way? And um, that was a source of sadness for me for quite some time. It was several years ago that I said, wait a second, if I understand love in only those terms, I am denying myself many of the manifestations of love that have given my life meaning and, and you know, made me who I am, whether that is you know, my love of you know, learning or my love of laughter, my love of my, my friends and my family, all of these sources of love that have given my life so much richness and color. And if, if I undervalue those, I undervalue my entire existence. Um, so, so although I don't experience the same kind of romantic love that I think many people um, understand to be the quintessential or even primary source of love in life, like that's not how I've had to experience it. You know, I, I, there's never a moment um, you know, when I I feel uncomfortable telling my friends how much I love them, or tell my telling my nephews. I have five nephews, and I tell them as many times as I possibly can in the course of a day how much I love them and how much they mean to me. And the same thing with my family and and um, you know, all the ways we experience we can experience a sense of fullness and completeness as a result of, of the love in our lives and like that was an important transition for me to make and that's of course not to say that I won't ever have these kinds of more traditional love-based relationships but you know if that doesn't present itself I will not feel like I will have had a lack of love in my life. Brooke, in about 30 seconds or less, if you could speak directly to someone who's going through a challenge similar to what you've experienced, what would you say to that person? Uh, that you can, and that people have, and that you will, right? That, um, that challenges can seem all-encompassing, but you know, if we uh, focus on the ways that we can continue to find meaning in our lives, we will find it, and um, to not be encumbered by the things we thought made our lives meaningful. Right, because there's always a way to find meaning and purpose in our lives moving forward. The book is Look Both Ways. If you'd like to get more information about Brooke and her work, you can visit brookeellison.com. Brooke, thank you so much for spending this time with us. And thank you for being so open and honest about your feelings. You were talking about meaning in someone's life. You are definitely changing lives by sharing your story and offering hope. You know, you mentioned studying hope, offering hope to so many people. So it's really been a pleasure having you here and an honor to meet you. Oh, the pleasure's been all mine, Joan. Thank you so much. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path, personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. Are you a hardworking, high-achieving, independent, successful woman? But there's one area in your life where you really want to be successful, and it just hasn't happened yet. I'm Odette Coronel, Certified Life and Relationship Coach. I work with women just like you. I can help you create a long-lasting, meaningful, satisfying relationship with your life partner by using my signature life method and reigniting the spark within you. Visit OdetteCoronel.com and book a free session with me today. If disorganization negatively affects your quality of life on a daily basis and you're ready to get help, call Let's Get Organized. We serve clients living with chronic disorganization caused by ADHD, anxiety, or depression. Either on-site or virtually, we help you clear the clutter, create and maintain simple systems, and show you how getting organized will change your life. 
Call us at 201-613-2733 or visit our website at lgorganized.com. An invitation to appear on a radio show or podcast provides you with the opportunity to showcase your knowledge while promoting yourself, your products, and your business. It can elevate you as an expert, boosting your reputation, but only if you make a good impression. If you want to stand out as a great guest who is remembered, celebrated, and gets invited back, you need to give the host and listeners what they want while communicating with confidence and charisma. Hi, this is Joan Herman. After years on air, I can tell within minutes if a conversation will be stimulating or not. Being prepared with a compelling message makes all the difference. In my training program, It's Your Time to Shine, I provide valuable information that will empower you to make the most of any media appearance. You work hard to get the booking, so don't waste the opportunity because of a lack of skills or preparation. To learn more, visit joanherman.com slash media training. That's joanherman.com slash media training. From the studios of AM 970, The Answer, on Broadway and Wall Street in Manhattan. This is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. Today's guest, Robert Party, experienced the devastating loss of his young wife to metastatic breast cancer, which prompted him to reimagine his life and the way he wanted to live. Robert joins us today to discuss how we can dismantle limiting beliefs, interrupt habitual thinking, and learn to take chances. Robert helps people live consciously through personal growth retreats, workshops, and individual coaching. He's a three-time author who was known for saying, possibilities exist all around us, but without action, they remain in the land of the wishing. Welcome, Rob. Thank you so much for joining us. Joan, I'm so thrilled to be here. Thank you very much for having me. So, Rob, I wanted to have you on the show because you have a, a story that, while it's it's tragic, it, it actually is a beautiful love story as well. So would you tell us a little bit about your wife and what you experienced together? I certainly would. Um, I think about her every day still. So I met Desiree. Her name was Desiree, and I met her her first day of um, university at Stony Brook University, actually. She was 17, I was 19, and it just was one of those things that when we first met, we wound up then just becoming that couple that was always together. And my wife had a very, very strong personality, and I was actually not used to that at all coming from a woman because I grew up in a very, very traditional American-Italian family. And I found this a little unusual that she was so strong in her opinions. And I just I found it so captivating. But one of her beliefs that started to change a lot for me was to basically focus on doing your best and not necessarily worrying about, you know, whether that's a hundred on an exam or an A, she actually never really looked at her grades, which is sort of important to the way this whole story is going to unfold. And I just found that really interesting in thinking about that if we just show up as our best every day, we're doing exactly what we were supposed to do. And there's no judgment on that. And that sort of unpacked a lot. She became the founding director of palliative care at New York Hospital. Believe it or not, that was while she was dealing with metastatic breast cancer and chemotherapy every other Friday. She basically, from the age of 30, right before her 31st birthday is when she was diagnosed and for 11 years journeyed with um, metastatic breast cancer, chemotherapy, and everything that goes with that. But she did an MD, a PhD, and became that founding director. After you experienced that loss, Rob, what made you want to change everything about the way you had been living? Oh, Joan, that's a, that, that's a great question. And I will tell you that, you know, my wife and I, what was so incredible about our journey is we actually didn't focus a lot on the cancer. And that's partly because my wife actually asked me to be her buffer. So she didn't know a lot about her own diagnosis. She never knew the size of um, the tumor, the number of lymph nodes, or all of those other things until many, many years later. And so in a way, because we were looking at it that way, 
we said, okay, you know what? Cancer is not going to be the dominant color on the canvas of our life, but it's going to be an accent color for joy. And so despite the adversity in our life, we, we learn to live in this state of joy and, and grow and achieve and chase life, which is the name of the first book. But the other interesting thing was because her career was in palliative care, I learned a lot about quality of life. I learned a lot about choice. I learned a lot about extending life and extending death. So when the moment came where basically the conversation with my wife, because she didn't want to talk about these things directly, she was in the hospital, she was not doing well, and she said, Robert, I'm tired. And I said, okay, baby, rest. And I knew she was asking me to transition care to comfort. And that was the last conversation we had because immediately after that conversation, she fell into a coma. I think she was keeping all her energy going up until she could actually tell me. So after she passed away, I looked at what we achieved and I thought to my, I thought two things to myself. One, here was a woman that was confronting her mortality and yet stepped into a role where people were confronting their mortality and she achieved everything she wanted despite what was going on. So I looked at what I learned from that and what she gave me. And I always say all the time, her, her love is a beautiful scar on my heart. So I thought about that and carrying that forward. And the other thing is because of the way I grew up as a child and it's, you know, just so everyone could understand, um, I grew up with an alcoholic abusive father. So I learned a lot about resilience at a very, very young age. And that combined with Desiree, I said, okay, if I'm at this stage now, instead of letting this crush me, what would be an amazing story to come from this? And really it was, I always dreamed about living in Italy. And I realized that with Desiree, I did not become her caregiver because she was rather self-sufficient up until the very end, but I did become her life coach without knowing it. I'm an investment banker by trade, but having carried all the information about her disease, having helped her achieve her dreams, having learned about conscious choice and intentional living and resilience and grit and all those other things throughout my life, I realized after she passed away, the thing I missed was supporting her. And one of the things, of course, I miss her <laughs> every single day, but it was that idea of support and helping people achieve. And I said, oh, well, that's a life coach. Right. I'm going to go do that. Right. And, and Rob, you talk about possibility when someone's going through any type of a challenge. It's very difficult to see the possibilities. We get so caught up in all of the sadness and the pain. So how then can someone learn to see the other side of what is possible? Great question. And it's, it's actually a question I love because uh, I, I'm a little kid at heart at the end of the day, really. And that's what I tell people to, to do in a way, because one of our, our greatest tools is imagination, is daydreaming. And so, you know, when we are in that, that sadness, it, it is something we have to learn to create a space. You know, it was Viktor Frankl that talked about between stimulus and response, there's a space. You, whether it's taking conscious breath, whether it's mindfulness, there are a lot of tools you could use, gratitude or so forth. In that space, if you allow yourself to not wonder about how to achieve something at that moment, but just to start to daydream about what else could be possible, all of a sudden you'll start to see past some of that pains, past some of those, those limiting beliefs. You know, when it came to me reimagining my life, I did not speak Italian. I, for anyone listening here, yes, I was an investment banker. I can tell you an 11 year journey with metastatic breast cancer in the early 2000s, without life insurance, there was, there was no money left. And I wound up teaching English for $8 an hour until I was able to rebuild my career. And here I am a Columbia MBA. But it was because I allowed myself to daydream because daydreams are not at the beginning. When we try to create a dream, we invest so much in it. But a daydream is actually something that tickles our imagination. And 
that's where so much of our power actually lies mm -hmm. because imagination is fluid and it's, it's not bound. And that helps us expand in those moments. And what you did, Rob, I mean, you talk about taking a chance and so many of us are, you know, we're bound to certainty. We're afraid to take a chance. We're afraid of the unknown. What I learned with Desiree, when you really think about it, is we were at the, the height of our everything. She was doing the MD-PhD. She was at the top of her class. I was just uh, recruited by the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority in the Middle East. You know, I finished my, my Columbia MBA. It looked like we had all the certainty in the world because the financial aspect seems certain. But if you really allow yourself to be vulnerable and you realize there is no certainty, it's actually a weight that is lifted off you once you realize that, okay, I cannot keep fighting against something I cannot control. But what I can control is where I want to go, how I want to show up, how I want to think, how I want to feel. And even when I say how I want to feel, it actually winds up being a choice. Because the moment, if, if you think about a negative voice in your head, you're not that voice, but you can buy into it. Or you could say, wow, I can't believe I'm thinking this really crazy thing, uh, but that makes no sense. There's also another side to that. And it's the inner dialogue we have that helps us break through some of those limiting beliefs. But it really is the idea of certainty, which we talk ourselves into, is just that. It's something we've talked ourselves into. And so if you remove that restriction almost, if we want to use that word on that, you really become unbound. And that's a beautiful feeling. And Rob, what advice do you offer to someone who's listening to you right now who is saying, I can't live the way I am any longer? What would you say to that person to help take the first step? Now, I'm a big journaler, but I would say for anyone that is in that situation, saying that I can't take this anymore or um, I don't want to be here anymore, that's not constructive. So where do you want to go? It's always thinking about, are you running away or are you running towards? So look at, okay, if you're in this situation and I just can't take this anymore, what does outside of that situation look like? And a lot of times we restrict ourselves because immediately we start thinking of money. I can't do this and I can't do that because I really want this big house or I really want to go on all these vacations. That's when you can start to break those down to, well, how is it you actually want to feel? Like when I work with people, we start to look at what's outside of, let's say, that discussion of there must be more or I can't take this anymore. I'm not living a life that feels aligned with me. And as we get to start to see the future aspect of what could be, we reverse engineer to what's possible. And then we start moving towards that because at the end of the day, it's being the craftsperson of your life which is what you're going to find much more fulfilling than whether or not it's going to be, you know, that five bedroom house or being able to, to vacation in Bali, Bali. It would be building it and building that lifestyle. And Rob, very briefly in our final moments, sure. would you tell us about your book, Possibility in Action? Of course. So I think in metaphors all the time. Uh, but my, I'm a little crazy, <laughs> crazy in that way. I love to see all symbolism and all this other stuff. And so possibility in action defines my personal philosophy. I mean, that that name is the way I live my life is making sure that, you know, I take action to bring possibilities into my re reality. And, and it walks through impermanence. It walks through resilience. But really what it is, is it's 52 short stories basically they're a page a page and a half maybe something about a toll booth for example because every day we are paying a toll in our lives with our time now are we on the right road so it's 52 weeks of short stories and journaling to help someone deconstruct habitual thinking and start to see something new rob thank you so much for joining us if our listeners would like to learn more about rob and his work you can visit robertparty.com once again rob thank you Thank you very much. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Did you know that athlete's foot can spread to other parts of the skin, including hands, groin, and scalp? 
Hi, I am Dr. Anand Joshi, dietarist practicing in Woodland Park, New Jersey, at Advanced Foot Care of NJ LLC. Athlete's foot is a fungal infection of the skin, including between the toes. The fungus tends to thrive in warm, damp areas and can cause itching, cracking, blistering, and peeling of the feet. It's important to keep your feet clean and dry. Antifungal treatments in the form of sprays, powders, or lotions to apply to your feet are available in most drugstores. If the fungus is spreading or worsening after treatment, a person should see their doctor who can prescribe oral antifungal medications for the condition. If you'd like more information or to schedule an appointment, please visit our website, footpainnj.com. When deciding to list your home for sale, the goal is to sell your home at the highest price possible within the shortest period of time. Making sure that your home sells fast is an important part of this process because it makes sure that you net the most money possible. Hi, my name is Danielle Grosso from my team, GC Properties New Jersey, within Keller Williams Realty, here to share four tips with you on how to sell your home faster and at the highest price. One, make buyers feel at home by decluttering your home. Pack away all personal items like pictures, awards, and sentimental belongings. Two, since you took the time to declutter, keep it organized. Before the buyers show up, pick up toys, make the beds, clean and put away the dishes. Three, give buyers full access. Some buyers, especially those relocating, don't have much time available. If they can't get into your house right away, they might move on to the next one, and you don't want to miss the opportunity. Four, and most importantly, price it right. With all the competition coming onto the market, you want to make sure your home is noticed. By pricing it to sell immediately, your home will be seen by the greatest amount of buyers, might get multiple offers, and will sell above the asking price. Wouldn't that be great? If you want to sell your home in the least amount of time, at the best price, with as little hassle as possible, a local realtor is a useful guide. Call them today to find out what you need to do to get your home sold. productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach On Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining us today is Emanuela Fasoni, a certified health and life coach who has helped people experience breakthroughs in their health and lives. She's the author of the book, Healing Through Nature's Medicine. Emanuela is here today to discuss eating to lose weight. Welcome, Emanuela. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Joan. Such a pleasure to be here. So, Manuela, so many of us are yo-yo dieters. Why do we have so much trouble keeping the weight off? Well, um, it's unfortunate, but almost all weight loss products and programs actually pull the weight off at a tremendous expense to the health picture. So while creating more of a condition that brought on the excess weight in the first place, This is one of the reasons so often the weight comes back on and is more difficult to get off after going on a fad diet. What most people don't understand is that excess weight is most often the results of nutritional imbalances in the body. The best way to get the weight off is by undertaking a nutritional way of eating or lifestyle to return the body to the optimal state of health And um, a major byproduct of being healthy is the body actually ridding itself of excess fat. Do you think it's a good idea to get rid of the word diet? Because for me, that kind of means like something I go on and I go off. And you're basically saying it's more important for us to create a new way of eating, something that's sustainable for the long haul. Absolutely. I really, truly, you know what, that is something that I agree with 100%. Don't focus on diets. Don't focus on weight loss. Focus on getting healthy because that will lead you to feeling healthier. It's going to lead you to weight loss. A lot of people, while our body and lives have changed, right, over having kids over years, being married, having high-stress jobs, and going through menopause, a lot of different changes that we go through in our lives we can absolutely regain our confidence in all the places that it's gone missing. So we just need to relearn how to take care of our bodies in a different way. This process doesn't have to make us feel miserable as dieting and crazy workouts do, right? Mm-hmm. There is a simple there are simple ways to reclaim the autonomy we enjoyed before 
and feel damn sexy in our bodies again. Well, that's what happens when you go on these diets. You deprive yourself so much that you say to yourself, okay, I only have to do this for three months and then I can get off it. And then the minute you get off it, you slip back into your old patterns and you gain the weight back. So what should we be eating then for weight loss and weight management? That's a great question, Joan. So Generally, raw and nutritious foods will tend to satisfy the appetite easily, especially if the food is chewed slowly and thoroughly. So sometimes we feel like deprived, oh, we can't eat this, we can't eat that. But if you focus on eating foods that are high vibrating foods that are going to stimulate and feed your body the nutrients that it needs, you're going to lead towards weight loss. Eating meals at regular times releases fat routinely, and the enzymes take fat in slowly and systematically. But skipping meals, which a lot of us sometimes do, they think that, you know, if you eat less, you're going to eat, you're going to lose weight. Actually, that's wrong. By skipping meals and eating low-fat diets, eating meals that don't satisfy hunger, and going on fast by taking diet pills have the actually it has an um, the opposite results are going to happen. People don't get thinner. Any weight loss is temporary. So we're doing a lot of damage to our system with those fad diets and that yo-yo dieting. Yes, we are. Yeah. So this is such great advice, especially this time of year, because people you know, when summer comes around, they want to lose weight, they want to get in shape, and we do all kinds of crazy things. So this is a wonderful reminder, Emanuel, and thank you for being here. If you would like to learn more about Emanuel or if you'd like to work with her, you can visit embodyvitality.net. Or as always, to hear more from Emanuela, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Emanuela Fasoni. <music> for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read our digital articles, check out our team and book club, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow us on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com. <laughs>